Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for this channel. Today, we'll be talking with Patricia Buckley Ebry about her book, Emperor Weizong. Pat, welcome to the show. Thanks. Pat, I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Okay, so I would consider myself a historian of pre-modern China, especially the Song period, which is 10th to 13th century. I'm one of those who started studying China back when Americans couldn't go to China in the late 1960s. So I've seen huge changes in China and in the study of China. May I ask? Because in those days, uh, there wasn't much contact with scholars in China, and now there's a great deal. What was that drew you to China? What drew me to China? I started very early. I started both Chinese language and Chinese history as a second-year undergraduate, where this was at the University of Chicago, and the year before they had a social science uh, required course for everyone where you read things like Max Weber and Karl Marx. And I thought that if you were going to ask these big questions, you needed to know about societies other than Western society. And so that's sort of what got me into it, why I took those two courses the next year, and then I never quit. <laughs> it started and hasn't stopped. <laughs> I love that. So how did you come from your study of medieval China to writing a biography of Wei Zong? Because I got the impression from the end of your book that biography is not a very, or at least biographies of rulers, are not commonplace when it comes to Chinese historiography. That's true, you know, where it's been such a big thing in the European tradition. In China, it's a little unclear. Is there some level of taboo? But it's not, it's not something that they do. The Chinese have a huge historical tradition, but they're talking more about the state and the politicians um, and not really about the emperors as people. So what got me in it? When I started doing Chinese history, the big thing that most people wanted to do was some level of social history and starting trying to start from the bottom up. And, of course, this then is a complete reversal. But I, I moved from one subject to the other. I got quite interested in family and then women and gender. And then I became, in the 90s, more interested in pursuing issues of the visual. Because when, uh, as historians, we're working overwhelmingly with text. Mm -hmm. But we know from our own society that actually what you see is at least as powerful as what you read. And so could I get more of uh, what people saw in the period? And this is then what uh, drew me to the court, because there's just so much more evidence of uh, art and spectacle and ritual uh, at the court level. So that got me to the Sung Court, um, and then Wei Zung was something of a uh, logical emperor to choose because he was both an artist himself, a huge collector, um, a, a patron of court artists. So there was a lot of material I could use to try to develop the visual side of culture. That visual side really does stand out in your uh, study of Wei Zong, and I hope we have an opportunity to touch upon it uh, over the course of our uh, conversation. But what is it about Wei Zong, uh, apart from the visual, that makes him such a significant figure 
to Chinese history? Uh-huh. Yeah, now that's an interesting question. Traditionally, Chinese historians have generally looked on him as a failure because it was during his reign that uh, the Song Dynasty was invaded by the Jurchen. Basically, this is in 1125, 26, 27. They lost the northern third of the country, Huizong himself, and 3,000 members of the palace establishment were taken captive and brought to the far north. So this is a, a story of failure that way. And so that's in the Chinese historiographical tradition. If somebody fails, the, uh, the way you want to look at him is in terms of why did he fail? Well, I thought that I could look at this story differently, that uh, not everything that happened was directly attributable to him. And I'd want to keep uh, open the idea that his career could have gone quite differently. Uh, And in the Western biographical tradition, the idea that a hero has um, strengths and his strengths are also often his failings, Um, allowed me, I think, to make it an interesting story. So you tell the story about Emperor Weizong, but you also set it in the context of the China of his day. What was happening in China during that time? Okay. Uh, The Song period is a, a really interesting one because economically it's going gangbusters. That if you talk about the middle of the preceding dynasty, the Tang dynasty, say about 750, to Huizong's time, approximately 1100. You've had a doubling of the population. You've had a a growth uh, by 10 times of the amount of cash being minted. Uh, There's very active trade, urbanization. So lots of things are, are happening that way. And certainly one of the quite important ones is the development of the educated class as an important uh, element in the political structure. And this is very much tied to the development of the examination system, where people have to take competitive written exams to, in a sense, apply to become an official. And this becomes a a very big uh, element in the life of the elite and also affects their view of things because they feel that they... um, earned their positions. And this makes them, to some extent, identify uh, with the state. It's their state. Um, And so you will get, naturally, some level of uh, political competition, you might say, between the the throne and the literati elite. Mm -hmm. That conflict is sometimes one of values in your book as you point out, how they come from a very Confucian background. And one of the things that you uh, return to, and, and this is something else I hope we develop in a bit, is uh, Emperor Weizong's Taoism, which apparently he was very sincerely felt. Yes. Um, the, the literati elite is definitely, uh, they've been tested on their commitment to Confucian values, so that's very strong. And uh, Huizong is personally very strongly committed to um, Taoist religion. Uh, that has this you know, quite different side, that ritual and spectacle 
are important parts of it. It has um, much more concern with sort of the unseen world. It does set them on sort of different trajectories in terms of where their key values are. And you constant you can uh, occasionally go back and point out points at which the officials are when they're dealing with him, they try to distract him by sending him on almost these Taoist errands, such as building a particular ritual center and so forth. And as you point out, though, sometimes it worked the other way about how uh, Wei Zong would have them do something that sort of catered to their Confucian values, but gave him the latitude to do some of the things he wanted to. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, that's, I think, an interesting part of the story of how uh, each side can try to manipulate a bit, um, keeping the other ones busy with activities that they can hardly object to. <laughs> so how did uh, Wei Zong come to the throne? Was he the eldest son? No. So it's a somewhat unusual case, because in China the uh, principle is that you should have uh, father-to-son succession. Um, but uh, when he was just very young, his uh, own father died, and his eldest brother took the throne, uh, Judzum. That was in 1085, and he's born in 1082, so he was just uh, very small. But that older brother died uh, at the beginning of 1100. He's only 26, so it was not what you expected, and did not have uh, a living son. So then the way the Chinese system worked at that time is that the senior widow would be what we could call the kingmaker, get to choose who would, because there were, uh, I don't remember exactly, seven or eight brothers, mm-hmm. um, and his... Uh, official mother, not his actual mother who had died earlier, but his father's uh, empress, widowed empress, uh, she chose Huizong. He was the second oldest, but we're told, or she said, that his older brother had um, some health problem with his eyes. Um, Perhaps, you know, he didn't have glasses in those days. Perhaps he just couldn't read that well because his eyesight wasn't good. Um, and I think it's also possible that she liked the fact that he did not have a living mother because she could then play more of that role. So that happened um, basically just the same day that his elder brother died. He is chosen, um, immediately sort of put on the throne, put the imperial robes on him, and that starts the whole process. He then is emperor. And he becomes emperor at the age of 18 and he in the year 1100 or common era and he is now emperor but is the court really his mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah uh, especially coming that young there'd be things he knew about how the court operates but he of course hasn't hit any real experience yet well, and so for the first year or so you can see that he's learning how to handle things and I was very lucky that one of the people who is dealing with him, they have a small council of state, of three, four, five people who the emperor deals with most, uh, kept a diary which fortunately survives. 
so you could see a lot of what's going on, how this man, Zhang Bu, would explain to him the dynamics of different things and why you would do one thing rather than the other. What were the politics of the court at the time of his ascension? I mean, who was who were the various factions and what were they generally seeking to achieve? Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically, this is a pr- very factionally divided court that had been going back to the reign of his father where uh, a man called Wang Anshur had introduced what we called the new policies. This was changing some fundamental things in the examination system, in uh, the way uh, farmers are taxed, and all sorts of elements. Uh, But it aroused a great deal of resistance as well. So we usually call back the reformers and the anti-reformers, or the reformers and the conservatives. Um, And when his father had died in 1085, he had been totally on the reform side. He's succeeded by just a child, and his mother becomes sort of regent with that child, and she turns everything back, basically sends all the reformers out and uh, puts in anti-reform policies, going back to earlier ways of doing things. Then his grandmother dies in 1093, and Judson is old enough to rule on his own, and he brings back the reformers. So when Huizong gets on the throne in 1100, everyone wanted to know, is he going to reverse things again and go back to the anti-reform side? And for his first year, he's clearly um, trying to see if he could get a balance between the two. Could he get some cooperation? Could he uh, get people willing to make some compromises? He sort of spends about two years doing that and ends up deciding it didn't work. And he then, uh, like his father and his elder brother, goes to the reform side. It, one of the things that struck me as I was reading that uh, that uh, section was how it seemed he was as much trying to figure out where he stood as he was trying to figure out you know, if he could get what you refer to as a coalition government to work successfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think he started with the idea that he would definitely go to the reform side. I think he did start thinking that he could maybe do this grand coalition and saw good sides of each uh, position. So when he brings these reformers in, or he sides with the reforming uh, faction, and they become a more uh, permanent presence in the administration, does Weizong play a uh, prominent role in day-to-day governance, or do they handle a lot of the day-to-day stuff and he is more focused upon the ceremonial side? Well, he does have major ceremonial responsibilities, and those do have to come first, but they're not things you do every day. He would meet um, with a, this small council of state. And then there'd be one or two grand counselors. Uh, and he has one grand counselor named Tai Jing, who he uh, brings in in 1102. And he's uh, sometimes out of power, but it lasts till around 1120 of Tsai Jing being uh, a really major figure at court who's able to handle lots of the details. 
and Huizong comes to trust him very much. I ask because it seems all the cultural activities that you detail in his book must have consumed a considerable amount of his time. And I was wondering if he was just really good at time management or was he not as interested in the nuts and bolts of governance and he was more interested in being the emperor of a uh, sort of the cultural emperor of China or the, the, the head of mm-hmm. the, this mm-hmm. you know, cultural tone. Yeah. Uh, I think he probably spent quite a bit more time with the cultural activities than, say, the uh, state ritual. Um, I could imagine a day, I don't think I say this in the book, where he's only spending maybe an hour or so on politics, meeting with his uh, council of state, with his grand counselor, uh, in the morning, and possibly they need to come back later in the afternoon because some things are really going on, but that wouldn't be most days. Mm-hmm. You would do that in the morning. And then he's uh, he's got time to do all sorts of cultural things. He's a, a great painter and a great calligrapher. Both of those take a lot of time to practice. Um, and then he becomes a, a truly uh, outstanding collector. Mm-hmm. Um, the... 18th century emperor named Chen Wong put together this huge collection that is divided today between Taipei and Beijing, the palace museums. But before that time, Huizhen is the most um, important imperial collector. He pulls together an enormous amount of uh, the art of literati, both calligraphy and painting, and he gets uh, into the collection of antiquities that no earlier emperor had been involved with at all. had sort of started as a literati thing in the earlier century, in the 11th century. But this would be uh, collecting particularly ancient bronzes, which people were discovering, you know, farmers plowing a field, find something. And so uh, gradually there's more knowledge of these things. And he puts together a, a quite substantial collection, and we have his catalog, which is illustrated. So you've got pictures of 840 of these primarily bronze objects. Um, How so un- he's also then dealing with what we might call curators, mm-hmm. the people who are working with uh, the collections, trying to study them, figure them out, and so on. How typical was this role for uh, an emperor at that time? I mean, was his culture, were his cultural activities unusual, or were they simply a very heightened example of the sort of role that Chinese emperors were expected to, to play? Mm-hmm. Um, there was an expectation, this would go back into early Chinese history, that the court ought to be the center of culture. But this didn't mean that the ruler had to be um, that culture. You could be a patron, um, especially poetry. For instance, over the centuries, emperors are drawing poets to court, and the poets are writing things that glorify the court, things of that sort. We do have some, so the Song Dynasty started in 960, so we've got a century and a half before Huizong. Uh, a couple of the emperors were uh, quite good calligraphers. None of them really had ever done anything much with painting. And as I said, none of them had been involved in serious collecting. So Huizong is building on um, 
some level of precedence, but he's carrying it much further uh, than earlier emperors. If we went to earlier dynasties, some of them uh, collect painting. Uh, usually, court officials are doing it rather than emperor being identified with it that much. And if there was something that the emperor was doing, it would be more connected to poetry, I think. And it's not just that he is active as a painter and a calligrapher, but he is among the best in the country at this time. Uh, that is true. Yeah, no, it's an amazing thing that someone who happens to end up as emperor is also clearly a very talented in what we tend to call the arts of the literati, the calligraphy, painting, and he's uh, quite acceptable in poetry as well. So these are sort of these uh, three things that are connected to the use of a brush. Yeah, I was struck by how unusual that is in a Western context. I mean, it's very difficult to think of many Western rulers who were artistically accomplished as opposed to simply playing that patron role. I mean, you could think of, say, Frederick the Great as a composer, uh, but the idea of having an emperor who is at the same time an artist is like the idea of having, say, Bruce Springsteen as president of the United States in terms of he's not just you know, serving this governing role, but he's also setting a tone. And I was also wondering, how does that, do, do you see that as playing a role in terms of shaping his collecting as well? Does he, uh, is he, does he have a better eye perhaps, or is he assessing it from a, a different perspective that is uh, unusual in the context of all these mm -hmm. other Chinese emperors? Mm -hmm. uh, I think definitely. We don't have much evidence of him uh, telling people what to collect. We do have catalogs, but without pictures of paintings and calligraphy. But we have quite a few stories about his interest in the work that court artists do for him, where it, it's clear he did have standards he wanted people to meet and sometimes criticized their work and said, do this over again, do it this way. Uh, so if you, know, you want to distinguish collecting where the things that were several centuries old are considered much more important than things done last year. But courts, of course, also produce art. And there he does um, set the tone for the artists of his court. You also mentioned that he is a person who really likes to embark upon projects and see them to completion. So he's not just painting and composing. He's also undertaking a lot of large cultural monuments. And I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, there um, I have a chapter on his uh, pursuit of the monumental that mm, he does quite a few really big projects. One is uh, producing a new Taoist canon. So this would be scriptures but Taoism scriptures can be revealed from people getting messages from gods and so on. So they're always creating new scriptures. And he brings in Taoist priests from all across the country, have them work on compiling uh, this, and then getting it printed. So in China, printing comes in earlier than in the West, and this would then be the first printing of the Taoist canon. So that's one of the ones he does. Uh, he also... Uh, has a group of scholars work out how to 
um, build a bright hole, something that the early classics had said uh, should be done by rulers and has all sorts of um, cryptic statements in the classics of what it should be like. So you need a group of scholars to try to study those and figure out how to do it. And that is something then that was definitely considered Confucian. Um, he builds these big collections and gets them fully cataloged. He has a, a set of Confucian rituals, uh, a new set of rules for how they would be done that's you know more than 100 chapters as a work. So he is interested in doing things on a big scale. I guess another one that's important there is he builds a big park that uh, near, the, near the palace that he has plants and animals brought in from across the country. So he's doing something, again, there are allusions to these ideas in the classics, but none of his predecessors in the Song Dynasty had done anything like this. So he's doing things on a large scale. And that's where your book is very fascinating, the sense that on that level, it seems as though he should be regarded as uh, the emperor at a point of China's cultural and, uh, and, 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 and economic peak. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same, at the end of the book, you, when you're analyzing what he might have done a little differently, it seems that some of this came at the cost of aspects of his job that had he done them, he might have reigned longer. His reign would not have uh, ended the way that it did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly convinced that if, uh, things had not turned out the way they did. That is, let's say, you had these Jurchen, they overthrow their masters, the Khitan, and then invade Song. If the Khitan had been able to suppress the Jurchen, there never was an invasion. Huizong is, is on the throne another decade or two. He would have gone down in history as a supremely cultured emperor who raised the standards uh, both for the court and for the larger elite society. But I do see that it's not just accident that things went badly. He did become very... um, His Taoist faith entered sort of a new stage in the period after 1116, where he thinks that there's been a new revelation. He wants to have Taoist temples built in every prefecture in the country. He sets up a Taoist examination system. He does seem to have sort of let this get a bit out of control. Um, And so to what extent that led to the military difficulties they had is a little hard to say, but it certainly didn't help. I was wondering if you could speak a bit to some of the foreign policy uh, issues that he was dealing with in the run-up to the Jurchen invasion. You, for example, talk about expeditions that uh, he had uh, generals leading to the south. Uh, what was going on in terms of the frontier? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the real challenge for Song China and for most of the pre-modern dynasties is the north, where uh, it was a better place for horses, and horses are the um, major weapon of war in that period. 
so that the Chinese dynasties do have this challenge of the horsemen, the pastoral societies. Uh, a century earlier, just in um, 1004, the, this northern dynasty, the, the Khitan, um, the Liao dynasty, and the Song dynasty had made a peace treaty, which you could argue was Chinese buying peace. Is they would make payments every year of uh, silk and silver so that they wouldn't get invaded. And this is an, an interesting situation where financially this was actually a terrifically good deal. They had to pay a lot less than the cost of armies because armies are very expensive things. Um, Probably many of the advances that we see in some times are connected to the fact that they did buy peace for a century. But it can also be looked at as uh, we're paying tribute to mm -hmm. the Khitans, which is how the Khitans looked at it. And so there were always a lot of uh, Chinese uh, officials, leaders, who saw this as very humiliating and wanted a chance to uh, get back at them. And so that's the, the big thing that happens uh, with Huizong. So now we're talking about the period after 1116 when the Churchin have become um, a new element in the political situation to the north. And it's proposed to Huizong that Sung should make an alliance with them to defeat their long rivals, Liao. And so this is certainly something where you can see Huizong made the wrong choice. Mm. Uh, there's quite a bit of debate uh, among his top um, advisors. The, more, the older ones tend to think, no, don't give up this alliance with Liao. The younger ones are pushing him, saying this is a once-in-a-dynasty opportunity to... Uh, overturn things so that we are at the top, not uh, subordinate to Liao. And the whole thing turns out disastrously. And at they, the same... Go ahead. Um, that the Jurchen are able to defeat Liao largely on their own and then realize that Sung is uh, not that strong um, and then basically uh, give up their alliance with Sung and instead attack them. That does come out the uh, the degree to which the debate and the negotiations are so played out that it really gives the church the time. But it also their ruler is very opportunistic in a way that you point out that Wei Zung is not. Mm -hmm. Right, and you're having um, a different kind of situation. Probably people coming from European history in the period would expect many uh, rulers to be negotiating themselves, uh, people who maybe saw the um, TV series, the Tudors, you know, you, you present the rulers making a lot of his decisions themselves. So these descriptions we have of the negotiation, the Jurchen ruler is uh, a tough guy. <laughs> He's <laughs> insisting on what he wants. Where Huizong uh, when envoys come to their capital at Kaifeng, he meets them briefly and then has his officials deal with them. He's not discussing these issues of uh, warfare directly with them. So 
he nonetheless though signs off on the decision to right you know the eventual decisions they make and with the jurchin attack uh the uh the sung how does uh wei zung respond to this um basically when they uh attack he says he discusses with his officials what to do and then comes to the conclusion that he ought to abdicate so that he can basically say, oh, it's our fault, we understand why you're mad at us, um, but now we've got a new ruler and let's try things again. So he abdicates to his eldest son, who'd been the heir apparent for a long time, um, and he then um, gets out of the capital when he gets an opportunity, leaving his son, Chin Zung, and his officials to deal with a very difficult situation because the capital is besieged. And as you point out, that there were some errors made in that respect as well, that he uh, could have stuck around, uh, but that when he abdicated, the assumption was, was that that was not a, you know, leaving a proverbial sinking ship. The expectation was that he was going to enjoy a nice, comfortable retirement focusing upon his cultural pursuits and that the dynasty would go on. And yet right. that, that's not how it turned out. No, that's not how it turned out. And another sort of mistake you can see is that um, people who suggested the court ought to immediately leave while the uh, enemy is still invading, because after all, in those days, you don't arrive in one day. Uh, that could have worked. In the Tang Dynasty, that had happened. Um, you, we, there'd be times in the subsequent Sung Dynasty when the court gets out of the way with people invading. So that, that is an alternative that could have happened but didn't. Um, Why Huizong is not sort of able to lead the comfortable life of a man of culture and with uh, strong religious interests, some of that is going back to the factional politics, that the the attack of the Jurchen was taken by most people as a sign that the reformist group has made big mistakes. Uh, Huizong brings in people who had been neutral, who had not played leading roles at the court, who were interested in, in reversing things. Um, so they become uh, quite concerned when Huizong's in the South, they're afraid he somehow might set up a, a rival court, and they bring him back or force him to come back to Kaifeng, where he is mm, kept out of the way, a bit guarded. I wouldn't say quite a prisoner, but he doesn't have the freedom to just do anything he wants. How does the war end? Uh, the second time uh, Kaifeng is put under siege, they uh, don't negotiate at the very beginning like they did the first time. Instead, they try to fight, but they fail. Uh, by this time, Huizong uh, and his son are in the palace. They are all taken north with a large numbers, about 10,000 people altogether, um, convoys, 
with all the loot, too, all of his collections and things of this sort. But he had one son who uh, was away from the palace at the time. He'd been sent on sort of uh, envoy missions. And the uh, Song officialdom, who are not taken captive, rally around him, and he's put on the throne. So the dynasty is able to succeed. Uh, to continue, and this is, makes it possible to uh, rally troops, the army um, that had not been captured, the uh, recruit many more people to join armies, and the Sung is able to defend uh, the South. Maybe 60 to 70 percent of the population would be in that area, so it's still a sizable uh, government. It, Huizong's day, you had about 100 million people, and the southern Tsung is maybe about 60 million. But, you know, compared that to any country in Europe at the time, it's still pretty huge. But at this point, Huizong himself is in exile. He's uh, a prisoner, and he spends the last decade of his life in captivity. That's right. Right. With his, uh, many of his sons, um, and grandsons, it's um, but it's very far north, probably past the border of today's uh, northeast China. Wow. What was that captivity like? Um, we have a variety of sources. Some of the most interesting deal mostly with the uh, trip itself of people who uh, somehow got free somewhere along the line of sort of describing what had happened. After they're finally up there, it takes several years. They move them from one place to another to another. So it's uh, several years before they're at their final destination. And then we don't know too much. We have little hints. For instance, one source says that uh, Hui Zheng would spend time with his uh, um, progeny um, working on their ability to compose poems how to make couplets, things of this sort. He, before he's really far north, um, the Jurchen knew he was a well-known calligrapher, and so they would make presents to him, requiring him then to write a thank you note, and these were collected and even published at one point. So it, it varies from one place to the next. Gradually, it gets worse. And it's a lot more worse for a lot of the uh, people lower down the social scale in this body of prisoners. Yeah, right. Um, there, the really uh, tragic case is the imperial clan. So that um, because the Chinese were not uh, monogamous, the rulers uh, could have a lot of children because they would have uh, multiple spouses. And so the clan itself has grown quite a bit. So we've got uh, thousands of members of the imperial clan. And they're not taken with Huizong. They're taken to different destinations. And their numbers keep shrinking uh, remarkably. So their um, conditions must have been very bad to have anything like that kind of death rate. Well, it's quite an ending considering the, uh, you know, the, where he, uh, the clan was when Huizong right. came to the throne. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, this is a enormous reversal of fortunes. Yes. 
Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Okay, I'm doing something very different. Um, For years, I've been a co-author on a world history book, and so I've gotten to understand a bit more how people who teach world history at high school or college level, um, what are the things about China that are difficult for them to understand? And I think the biggest one is why has China been the biggest country in the world for most of its history? And so that's what I'd like to try to offer an explanation, but doing it in a way I'm not writing primarily for other Chinese historians, but for people with more general interests. So I could answer uh, part of that immediately, and that is to say it's because they've been able to reunify um, where you know they couldn't put the Roman Empire back together, they couldn't put the Caliphate back together, they couldn't put the Byzantine Empire back together, and so on. Um, but China was able to reunify and actually make stronger dynasties, where you could say like the Byzantine Empire is not as strong as the Eastern Roman Empire had been. So that's what I'm working on. Uh, it won't just be on the Song period. I'll be covering a longer period. I'm sort of thinking I'll probably work maybe 350 to 1350, a 1,000 years, and try to see the big picture. Wow, that sounds like a really interesting project. Well, Professor Ibri, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you.